The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 20 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for his word. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you in your presence today as a needy people. We need to hear from you. So open our eyes that we might see wondrous things out of your word. Bring us to the foot of the cross so that we might see more G- Jesus more clearly, so that we might change and you might be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. Early June 1944, stage was set for Operation Overlord, which was to be the largest single amphibious assault in world history. And um, this was an immense challenge. Uh, it took over 16,000 men, two, three, four, something like that, months to plan this. They had to figure out how to launch 12,000 planes and 7,000 ships to drop 24,000 paratroopers behind enemy lines and land 160,000 troops on 50 miles of coast. Oh, and by the way, to do all this without the Germans catching on. The window for launch was June 5th through 7th, but on the 4th, just before the command to go could be given, bad weather blew in. Weather that was bad enough that it might prevent the attack. If they went forward in this weather, they could lose thousands of lives, the invasion could be stopped, and it could imperil the entire war effort. But to delay could have equally disastrous consequences because the next time they could go wouldn't be for another two weeks, and it would be impossible to keep the movement and planning of that many men secret for that long. So they were faced with a very difficult choice. Later that day, a 36-hour window opened in the weather. They couldn't be 100% sure that it would last, and they knew it would close shortly thereafter, but it was an opportunity for them to take. So the various generals and admirals got together, uh, they took counsel, they discussed their options, and ultimately, though they all had opinions, it came down to one man, Supreme Allied Commander Dwight D. Eisenhower. He had to make a choice. And when all was said and done, the room was silent as they waited for him to decide. And after a few minutes of thinking quietly, he looked 
at his men, calmly said, okay, let's go. And as we know, the invasion of Normandy was a success. I tell you that story because there are times that change everything. Moments in our lives. Words that we read. Sometimes we recognize them in the moment, as Eisenhower certainly did. Sometimes we only see them in hindsight. But there are moments of pivotal importance. And for many men, the passage that we're looking at today is one of those moments. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that this is one of the greatest and most important sections in the whole of Scripture. Leon Morris, an Australian theologian, says that this is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. And Martin Luther hand-wrote in the margins of his Bible next to this passage the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. What was it that was so important about this passage? Well, as Doug said last week, today we're continuing with our sermon series on the central truths of the Protestant Reformation. And I don't want to rehash his introduction. You can go listen to it last week. It was great. But we're looking at this because 500 years ago, the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ had been obscured and corrupted and was nearly lost. And in the Reformation, it was rediscovered. As we go through this series, in a sense, we're going back to the basics, the central tenets, the core of our faith, the very essence of the gospel, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And I know of very few passages that display it as clearly as our passage here today. And... um. The reason we're looking at this, it's our hope that our reaction to it would be the same as the reformers, because it changed their lives and it changed the entire world. One writer puts it extremely provocatively, and I love this. He says, this was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk, because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. I love that. It's, it's an extremely awesome, provocative mental image. So as we look at this passage today, um, it's long. There's no way we can cover all of it. Uh, it deals with all of these doctrines. What we're going to do is we're going to focus in on the central couple of verses, verses 24 through 26, as we look at salvation in Christ alone. Now, what we want to do here as we look at these passages is we want to, in a sense, cheat. We want to look at the end. We want to jump to the end and look at Paul's conclusion. If you were in a math class, this would be cheating, right? You look at the back, you look at the end, so you can't do that. But here it's going to help us. And what Paul says here at the end of verse 26 is that God sent Jesus, and we're going to get into all that, so that he, God, might be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, as we read this, this should perplex us. This should confuse us because what Paul's been doing in the book of Romans all the way up to this point is he has been arguing this famously, that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And it's a basic principle in the Old Testament that justice means you let the innocent go free and you condemn the guilty, right? And we, we get that. Justice means that those who are innocent are acquitted and those who are guilty are condemned. In fact, Proverbs 17 says this, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. So how then can it be that Paul would say in verse 26 that God would be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus, when just a few verses earlier he has said that there is no one righteous. The key is in the last two words of verse 26. That he would be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see those words, in Jesus or by Jesus, appear earlier in this passage. I've highlighted them for you there. Because this is the very center, the very heart and soul of the gospel, that salvation is in Jesus Christ. So to look at that, I want to dive into what Paul does here. He uses three words to describe this. Three really, really big words. Big, both in the sense that they're long and a little bit confusing when you first look at them, but big in the sense that they are critically important because they show us what Jesus did in his death on the cross. And those words are redemption, justification, and atonement. And you know, Though we look at that and that's like, okay, whoa, those are complicated words. We don't need to be uh, brain surgeons or we don't need to be literary experts to understand what these mean because Paul uses each of those words to give us three different pictures, three different illustrations of what Jesus did on the cross. So we're going to dive into each of those pictures and see what it is Paul says Jesus did. We're going to take them in reverse order, starting with atonement. The image here of atonement is that of the Old Testament temple. Um, and in the Old Testament temple, there uh, was, or in the tabernacle before that as well, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was the box that um, they had made and it housed the law of God. The tablets were the Ten Commandments that God had written himself and put in there, and it was in a place called the most holy place, which no man could enter because, as God says, that he was there above the Ark of the Covenant. And if you were to come into God's presence, you would die. Now, what's interesting is the cover of that Ark, the top of it, the lid, was called the cover of atonement. It's the same word that Paul uses of what Jesus did in Romans 3 when he says that he was a sacrifice of atonement. Your translation may say in Romans 3 that Jesus was a propitiation. It's the same word. And then it also may say uh, here in uh, Leviticus, it also can translate it mercy seat. But it's the same word. And what would happen is once a year, 
the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. And Leviticus says that he, the high priest, shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood and he shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. And in this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. What they would do in the Old Testament is they would take blood and they would sacrifice it and they would sprinkle it on this atonement cover and that would atone for the sins of the people and they would do this once a year. This language of atoning um, causes people some problems. And again, it could be tr- translated propitiation in your Bible. And we, we use this language when uh, there has been a break, a problem in a relationship. And you have done something wrong and that person is rightly angry with you and you have to atone for what you've done. Or you have to propitiate to appease their justified wrath and anger at you. And we kind of get this instinctively, right? Like say you do something to really upset your spouse. You're like, oh, I need to make up with this. And men, what do you do? You, you like buy flowers or something like that, right? You, you, you do something because you instinctively recognize that you have done something wrong and this needs to be repaired. And what Paul says here is that Jesus, in his death on the cross, atones for our sin. He propitiates the wrath of God by his blood sprinkled on the cross. So it's no longer the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat between God and us that atones for sin. It's Christ's sacrifice and Christ's blood shed on the cross that atones for sin. Like I said, this causes people problems. This is controversial. Um, Many of you will be familiar with a hymn that we sing here at Stonebridge called In Christ Alone. And this is one of the lines from that song. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. In 2013, a Christian denomination here in the United States was, um, they were making a new hymnal. And they were considering in Christ alone for inclusion in that hymnal. And, but they did not want to use this line. They instead proposed an alternate, which says, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Of course the love of God was magnified on the cross. But they wanted to change the words. Uh, the authors of the hymn refused to let them. They said, no, you, we're not going to give you permission to do that. And because the authors refused to let them change the words, the denomination chose to not include the hymn in their hymnal. And this is what the chairman of the committee who made that decision said. A hymnal selects to emphasize some views over others as part of its mission to form the faith of coming gener- generations. It would do a disservice to this mission to perpetuate the view that the cross is about the need to assuage God's anger. Because they they had a problem with the wrath of God, they didn't include this hymn. And this is something that is common in our world and in our churches, as, as we can see, that the idea that God would be wrathful would be offensive and we'll say sometimes, uh, or you'll hear, well, that's just what Paul says. I, I don't want 
all of that doctrine. Just give me Jesus. And that's the same Jesus who said this in John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The problem that we by nature often have with this is not with the apostle Paul's words, or it's not with Jesus' words. What the problem really is, the thing that's really offensive to us, is that God could dare to be angry with me. Because at the end of the day, what is it that I have done to offend him? Scripture tells us that what we have done is nothing with zeal to glorify God. As we just saw in earlier Romans 3, no one seeks God. And because of that, that our entire lives, apart from him, are an offense. But the glory of the gospel that Paul shows us here is that the Father still sent his only Son to be an atoning sacrifice, to propitiate his wrath, even though we have lived indifferently to him. As Tim confessed for us earlier, that we have despised him, that we have been apathetic to him, and we have not cared. The thing that's profoundly offensive about the gospel, and there is something that's offensive, is not that God would be angry with us. The thing that we should hardly be able to bear is that God would still love us so much that he would send his son to die for us. That, as Paul says later in Romans, that Christ would become a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. This shows us two things here. This shows us how desperately offensive our sins are to God. As one hymn writer put it, ye who think of evil lightly, nor suppose it's evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. But it also shows us the amazing love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have for us, that they would take counsel and they would say that there is nothing in these people that can appease our wrath. There's nothing in this people that can satisfy for their sins. There's nothing in these people that can justify them before us. And we will solve their problem. Even though it would cost the Son his death on the cross. And even though it would cost the father's gaze turned away from the son so that the son would bear the father's wrath. When Charles Wesley um, understood this for the first time, he wrote these words. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? When Paul says that Jesus has has made atonement for sins, that he has propitiated the wrath of God, he tells us that we now have peace with him. There are many people in the world today who are seeking peace. 
Uh, we are a deeply unsettled people and a deeply unsettled culture. Uh, a study just came out recently showing that alcohol is, alcoholism is on the rise. Um, here, Paul shows us that true peace can be found in the sacrifice of Christ's blood. So he takes us first to the temple talking about atonement. But that's not the only place that he takes us. Then he takes us to the world of the slave market, talking about redemption. And uh, we know from uh, the, the slave market that to redeem somebody was to buy somebody, to pay a price to bring them out of slavery and to set them free. That they are enslaved and cannot free themselves, and a price must be paid. And what Paul says here is that there is redemption in the blood of Jesus Christ, that the payment is Christ's blood. You see, it's not only about the wrath of God, it's that we, as Jesus says in the Gospels, that those who sin become a slave to sin. That we by nature can do nothing else, that it controls us, and that we need to be set free. Charles Wesley, again, uh, said these words in that same hymn. Long minds pr- prison spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Charles Wesley was an Anglican minister. At the time that he wrote that hymn, just a few days, we think, after his conversion, he had been a minister for 12 or 13 years. When he was at Oxford getting his uh, degrees and his, his studies, he formed a prayer group that was so dedicated to studying the Bible and living a holy life that other students mockingly called them the holy club. All they would do is pray and study the scriptures, and they would visit regularly with condemned prisoners to pray for them and to show mercy to them. He lived a life of vigorous righteousness. And yet, it was not until 13 years later that he said, my heart was truly free because he had realized the truth that he could not earn God's favor. But that he, Christ's blood had paid for his sins. That it was provided freely for him. Martin Luther has a similar testimony. He says that when he realized this, I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. As we sang earlier in the service, um, Our shepherd grew good and true as he who will at last his Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. And the truth of the gospel is that if you are a believer, though sin may still be present in your life, it no longer reigns in you. It no longer controls you and it no longer defines you. And what that means is that when the devil attacks you and suggests that you're not a Christian and you've never been a Christian because of what you feel in your heart, Or when you read the scriptures and you feel condemned and that the ground is going to sink you up and swallow swallow you whole, you can remember that if you are in Christ alone, sin no longer reigns in you. You see, it doesn't depend on anything that you do. It depends entirely, as we always say, on what Christ has done. Paul 
again, does not leave us there. He takes us then from the slave market to the law court. And this is where the language of justification comes in. Um, As Paul had said just a few verses earlier, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. No one who does good, not even one. And that is the condemnation, the judgment, as all of us come before the seat of God. But Paul deals with that, saying that we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ because he is fully satisfied for our sins. I have nothing within me um, that will be the basis for relationship with and right standing before God. Uh, It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter um, how much time I spend in the scriptures. It doesn't matter how much I translate the scriptures from Hebrew and Greek, which is lots of fun, let me tell you. No frustrations in that at all. It doesn't matter how many sermons I preach. It doesn't matter how many notes I have in my computer of lessons that I've taught. It doesn't matter how good a son or a husband or a father I would be. It doesn't matter um, any of these things, the people that I've served. Now, do all those things matter? Of course they matter. But none of those things are the basis upon which God will view me as righteous and in relationship with him. And there's nothing in your lives that can form that basis either. Because there is no one who does good and no, not one. Justification before God is only to be found in what Christ did on the cross. There's a beautiful picture of this in uh, the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 3. And in Zechariah chapter 3, it's, it's actually a picture of a law court, and Joshua, the high priest who represents all of Israel, is standing there before the Lord. And Satan comes in to accuse him. And when Satan accused him, God speaks to Satan and said, says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this man not a brand plucked from the fire? You see, if we are in Christ, Christ takes our sin upon himself and he gives us his righteousness so that God will say to Satan, I rebuke you for I have chosen these people and I have plucked them from the fire. And this is a different thing. Justification is a different thing than pardon. Pardon is saying, you no longer have the penalty that your sin deserves. You are free to go. That's pardon. And of course that happens for us with our sin. But justification is something different. Justification is the bestowal of a righteous status, saying that there is no ground for punishment because Christ took it. Justification says, you may come. You are welcome to all of my love and all of my presence because I have put new, fresh garments upon you. When Paul uses these words, justification 
and redemption and atonement. He's showing us um, that we don't just have one problem. We've got three. We stand condemned before God because of our sin. We are enslaved to sin by nature. And God's wrath will be poured out on us because of sin. And Paul says that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross solves all three problems. As we always say, cheer up, you're way worse than you thought you were. Because Christ's work on the cross is immeasurably better. And that's why the title of this sermon is not just in Christ. That's why the doctrine isn't just in Christ. It's in Christ alone. The author of Hebrews, oh, I skipped this, that's okay. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 7. We'll get to it. There we go. Therefore he, Christ, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And that's why scripture can say things like this, where Jesus says in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. Or why Peter says in Acts chapter 4 that Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, and salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Tim earlier quoted from the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism, it's going to pop up in a second, says this. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. And you can compare that there to the catechism of the Catholic Church, which, again, this is what they were teaching with the Reformers when the Reformers pushed back, saying, no one can merit the initial grace which is at the origin of conversion, but moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life, as well as necessary temporal goods. Which one of these would you rather believe? that you could merit grace for yourself or that Jesus has fully paid for all your sins. Only one of those is true. We have a native tendency to look to ourselves, to look to our actions, to be able to be the basis for our relationship with God. We have a native tendency to add things to Jesus. What are you looking to? Are you looking to, are you trusting in Christ alone? Or are you looking to and are you trusting in other things? Because no one else can solve the problems that we have. 
And you don't need to do anything else because Jesus has fully solved all your problems if you are by faith in him. You need to be reminded of this every single day. I need to be reminded of this every single day because we are prone to wonder. So if you have looked to Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation, don't stop. Keep looking. The cross is wonderful and his name is beautiful because he has saved us. And if you haven't looked to Jesus, start looking today because there is salvation in no one else and there is no other name given among men by whom we can be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, (laughs) thank you for sending your son And as Tim has already prayed, we ask anew that you would forgive us for looking to anybody else or anything else for our salvation besides him. Father, um, we glorify you for what you have done. May we live ever more in the truth that Jesus has fully satisfied for all our sins. And let us live by Christ alone. In your name we pray, amen.